Hello, welcome to Inner Voice. My name is Masumi Rostad, and I'm the viola player of the Pacifica String Quartet. And I want to take you on tour with me. In this episode, we're playing in Palo Alto, California, at Stanford University. And I had a chance to record a conversation with Bernie Zoslov. Bernie was, now get this, a member of the Cajon String Quartet, the Composer String Quartet, the Fine Arts String Quartet, the Vermeer Quartet, and the Stanford Quartet. Can you imagine? That's a lot of string quartets. It blows my mind. Bernie's a great guy, and this is a really fun conversation, so I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Well, first, I'd just like to say welcome. Thank you. Good to talk to you and see you. Great to see you, too. And um, you just wrote a book, and this is called The Viola in My Life in Alto Rhapsody. Um, and this is uh, an autobiography uh, of a memoir of your life in music. Um, and I've just really loved reading it. It's it's just a great, great book. And it's it's very inspiring for me, too, as, as a violist. Oh, thank you. As a violist and quartet player. So can you talk a little bit about the book and your process with it? Sure. Well, uh, five years ago, I lost the ability to read a page of music my, with my vision problem, uh, macular degeneration, which is a very widespread thing in, in the world today. Luckily... My vision has been saved to what it is currently with a wonderful new invention, a, actually a drug that was originally going to be for, for treatment of cancers. It was to prevent the blood vessels from growing in the cancer, and somebody cleverly thought of that. Well, why don't we put that in people with retinal problems to hold that problem at bay? So for the past uh, two years, no, three years, I've been getting an injection of that drug, and it's really saved my vision. So I'm just delighted about that. Anyway, the reason uh, I wrote the book was that I lost vision and could not read a page of music. Uh, the problem with that is that if you're brought up as a virtuoso, you learn to, to <laughs> by heart, you learn <laughs> to use your memory for music. I did some of that, but most of my life has been playing string quartets. And so we kind of lost that ability or need to memorize. So I can noodle around without looking at music, but you don't want to hear that anymore. <laughs> and fingers and things took a toll and so forth, aging. So I thought instead of uh, what I couldn't play anymore in 2005, I sat myself down and said, instead of going into a depression, I kept myself busy writing my story which was how I became a viola player and the happy career that I've had. I've been fortunate. I've been so happy to have all of these wonderful things happen to me and to meet all these wonderful musicians. So I had to get that out. And so I started to write this memoir. Uh, there's a gal that I think you do know, Elaine Fine, was a critic, and she heard about it, and she came on board to be my editor. We did zillions of emails together and so forth. And she was so neat. As a matter of fact, I played a concert with a quartet at, uh, in Champaign-Urbana, and I mentioned this. Which quartet was that? This was the Fine Arts String Quartet in the 70s. And uh, I mentioned the concert we'd done, and she said, yes, I was there, and you left out such and such and such. <laughs> Imagine looking out to have such a writer. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you left out such and such? I wrote about what we had played at the concert. Oh, 
It involved the work of John Cage, actually, and I didn't know all the details. I, with my narrow mind, I was doing what I was doing. She was at the concert and recalled that the concert included a piece by John Cage and uh, who was at Liara Nahilla called Hepsichord, which is short for a harpsichord, a multimedia piece that Cage had done. And she said, I was at the concert and you left out all this stuff about <laughs> that concert. And she supplied me with that information. So that was so fortunate. Imagine looking out to find an editor who can expand on what you're talking about. That's really great. <laughs> <laughs> She's a neat gal. She's a multifaceted person, composer, amateur violist. Her dad was the first violist of the Boston Symphony, Burton Fine. Oh, of course. Wow. Anyhow, I got busy with this memoir, and I had to start, and I figured somebody has said, if you write a memoir and tell about everything that you've done chronologically, it's like reading the congressional record. Who needs it? So I thought to start from my first transfer from violin to viola, which happened fortuitously. I just graduated from Juilliard, didn't know what to do, and that summer I get a call from a friend who had graduated with me and said, Bernie, if you're not busy, you want to do a night summer job? I said, yeah, that's, I, I could use the money. He said, but you'll have to play viola. Duh, <laughs> I thought. He actually called you Zazzy, right? <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> my friend, Zasla. People have fun with Zazzy. <laughs> so he said, Zazzy, if you can show up with a viola tomorrow morning <laughs> at the stage door of the New York Paramount Theater, I have a good gig for you. So I figured, well, what's, I can use the money for the summer. But viola, duh, you know, there was always that thing about he's only a violist and that sort of a thing. What year was that? This would be 1946. There was such a year. <laughs> so I called, didn't know what to do, and in a panic, I called a friend of mine living in the Bronx, and I got up to his place, and he had a viola in the back of his closet, and I paid him 40 bucks for it. <laughs> Showed up the next morning with the viola. Didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I figured I would fake it. And uh, there were four violins and this one viola. The uh, arranger had decided to augment the strings to have a sort of a more mellow background for the current uh, crooner that they were having. He was in the model of Frank Sinatra, his name was Andy Russell, and he was one of the featured singers with this band of Raymond Scott. Raymond Scott was a famous band leader in those days, and he was involved with a lot of interesting things. At the time, I didn't realize he was as wide as he was musically, because I was playing this, what I thought was garbage, and we stood up and sang <laughs> cement mixer, putty putty, and stuff like that. <laughs> You stood up and sang? Yes, that was part of the deal. <laughs> and we yes, are, are you a good singer? <laughs> you should. You can hear me now. <laughs> so it was a guess. There were four shows a day at the Paramount, and in between, they showed the, the, the news and stuff like that. And you stood around, didn't know what to do, so I was bored out of my gourd, you know, and I had this viola in my hand. And I said, hey, wait a minute, I, I like what's coming out, even if it's this $40 box. And I began to be turned on to the viola. We were not able to get out of the stage door because, as I mentioned, this Frank Sinatra era, that we had something called bobby soxes, young ladies screaming to see their idol, you know, which was Andy Russell in the show. So we were stuck back there all, all day long. 
and I started to play the viola, and I fell in love with the viola. And that was my transition to viola. <laughs> That's a great story. I really love that. <laughs> I was fascinated um, as I'm, you know, I'm only a quarter of the way through the book. I just got it in the mail a couple of days ago, but I've been fascinated with just how much well, time has passed and how much the world of music has both remained the same and changed. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's very well said. <laughs> the whole thing about the book is to tell people what it was like in those years, how, how music has changed from them. Yes, the, the composers and the works are there, but it's difficult to, well, the, the book will tell you how, what, what it was like, what the scene was like. I was very fortunate, as I say, to have been in New York at the time when new music was happening and it was abundant. Edgar Varese, a wonderful composer, had a bunch of acolytes and students, and music was going in different directions by various pioneers like Milton Babbitt and Elliot Carter. I was in a quartet called the Composer's Quartet for whom Elliot Carter dedicated his fourth string quartet, and Milton Babbitt was doing his uh, serial music. Today, Pendulum has swung and is kind of out, out of fashion. Composers are writing tonal music and they're not ashamed to, to do so. But if you wanted to be a hip or the latest thing in those days, serial music, Schoenberg's uh, effect was very strong. And so that was interesting. And there were all kinds of pioneers having us strike the instruments like Xenakis and, and so forth. But the composer's quartet was a fortuitous thing because Gunther Schuller, who was a seminal person in new music at the time, and still as Gunther has just written his second volume of his biography, which numbers 600, 600 plus pages, and he's only gotten to 1961, I'm told. Wow, wow. <laughs> uh, but he suggested that there were so many wonderful composers, there should be a quartet dedicating itself to the output of these young people. So that's was the derivation of the composer's string quartet. And he selected these wonderful pieces for us. And uh, it, was, it was great times in new music. Uh, we didn't have big houses, let's say, but uh, we locked the doors and kept them in. <laughs> and I'm very proud to have been part of that. Here comes my first wife, Naomi, oh. of 64 <laughs> years. <laughs> I was able to steal her away from her teacher at Juilliard, Madame Rosina Levine, and vagled her into marrying me when I got my first gig with uh, George Zell's Cleveland Orchestra in 1947, yes. I'd played the viola for a year, and I tell the story in the book of, by audition for George Zell. Yeah. Those were the years when a person could audition for the, contact, for the conductor, and that was it. Now we have the, the current uh, thing that we do have now. So you just mentioned actually two things that I kind of wanted to, to talk with you about. One was um, with, with the composer's quartet. I mean, you, you were talking about kind of like this foment in the music world and how things were just so exciting and there was, there was so much going on and, and you felt like, I mean, you were on the cutting edge of, of what was, yeah, exactly. And so how has that changed? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting about cutting edge. The St. Lawrence Quartet that are in residence here at Stanford which is where we are right now in Palo Alto, California. <laughs> uh, last week played the, I guess it would be the Stanford premiere of Osvaldo Golijov's new string quartet. And it was greeted with some uh, uh, 
uh, Golijov was here, and there was a talk afterwards and so forth. He's a fascinating, sparkling person with marvelous mind. I'm crazy about his music. I, I just love uh, work that he wrote uh, uh, to me that was so, such a, uh, a wonderful thing. He wrote uh, a work called Dreams and Prayers of Isaac the Blind, which you're, you're nodding at. Have you done it? No, we haven't done it, but that's, yeah, wow. I, I mean, I love his music too. String quartet and clarinet. And it has this wonderful uh, Yiddish uh, tortuous and happy uh, elements in it and uh, the klezmer thing. And it's a marvelous thing. And I've heard others of his work, so I was expecting his passion is marvelous and so forth. Yiddish book, another quartet he wrote. So I was hoping this would be something uh, really moving, but he wrote a, a work of two movements, slow movements, and he admitted at the end that it's a work in progress. He's still thinking about adding or moving around. I suggested, I had the chutzpah to <laughs> suggest he write a fast movement in the beginning and then use the two slow movements. And he said, I'll consider that. That's right. You heard it here first, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> However, I must say, uh, uh, he's so much taken up now with he's, he's marvelous, and I think a wonderful composer today has all kinds of commissions thrown at him. They, they the St. Lawrence Quartet, have been waiting two years to get the thing, and he said there's piles of stuff on his music desk and so forth. So I guess it takes time for a, a work to gel and to find its right place. Uh, I admire that in a composer. As I, as I learned in writing, uh, I can't write. I'm a spieler, not a writer, but <laughs> I learned how to rewrite, and that's the important thing. But bringing up Golihov in the context of the new music world now, what was your point? The point is how different new music composers are writing today. They have shrugged off the complexities uh, Milton Babbitt demanded absolute control of the every note. Every note would have a different dynamic and a, a crescendo and a mark and so forth and so on because he had a vision of what he wanted. Mm -hmm. So the best performance would be the one that was most most faithful. You weren't really able to show any of your feelings about the music. The music had to be by itself. This is different now in the sense that composers have shrugged off that serial technique, and uh, although Stravinsky tried it at the end of his career as well. And so they've gone on to write unashamedly tonal music and bring other devices and music which is more personal to the audience, more available to the audience. We had to lock the doors to keep the audience <laughs> in for some of the stuff we played, but that was okay. As a matter of fact, uh, for one concert we were approached by a presenter who said, uh, could you put some Bartok on the concert? And we said, no, we don't play old music. <laughs> this was in the 60s. <laughs> nice. But uh, you, you know yourself how audiences react to new music. Maybe you can comment or amplify what I'm saying. Well, I think audience reaction has changed probably because the general understanding or experience of the audience has changed. I would guess that the education of the audience is not what it was back in the 60s and 70s, right? Because of the lack of public school education and, and right. yeah. You must find that very much in your own teaching, no? 
if you talk to a student today, do, does it, do any of them know who Yasha Heifetz was, <laughs> for example? Yeah, I, I do have to say that I'm actually constantly surprised by how little. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm I'm speaking like I'm older, but you know, but the younger generation <laughs> understands or knows of our recent history. And it's too bad that we've lost what we've lost. Of course, the media. Uh, the technology has changed, and so that's a big part. For example, all the recording. I've done actually 134 chamber works recorded. Imagine that for a viola. Wow. And uh, most of them, uh, which were done on vinyl, LP recordings. The best format, right? There you go. I'm with you, baby. <laughs> so we've digitized the life, and it's a digital world. And people walk around with things in their ears listening to the MP3, and I think they've lost thereby so much of the, the wonderful, well, we're violists, you and I. The middle range uh, uh, are what we love in, in music, right? I know that's exactly right. I, I think that, that what's so strange about what's going on with this music with this music um, format right now is that everyone is listening to everything from iTunes and getting MP3 files, which you're probably going to listen to this on. But... Um, but there's so much of a loss of quality of sound. And as musicians and instrumentalists who have been working so hard, and, and then at the end of the day, you know, people are listening to these things on, on iPod headphones, which are just such terrible quality. And, and I think actually vinyl has a beautiful sound. It's, it's, it's got a, quite a comeback now. I mean, you can pay a couple of hundred thousand dollars for the best sets nowadays. It's interesting, though, in terms of young musicians, uh, right now, I'm talking to people on viola.com. That's our forum. I don't know if you know about it. You probably do. Violas talk to each other worldwide, which is great. I talk to friends, colleagues, students, and so forth. And a youngster just posed a question in a recent post asking, what is a Hungarian dance? And <laughs> we were trying, <laughs> we are puzzling as to how to answer such a question. I mean, the most obvious one was perhaps Hungarian dances that Brahms loved and Aidan Haydn put in the end of his piano trios. But how do you give that, how do you explain that to a student who just started with the Suzuki and so forth and sees the words Hungarian dance, duh, what does that mean? So perhaps my book was not only my ego trip, but my wanting to say, look, this is how it was then. It was a very interesting time then. Yes, things were different. In one way, they were simpler. In another way, the uh, the changing of the guard and the understanding of the audience was a lot different. Nevertheless, uh, when I played with the Cleveland Orchestra with George Zell, people would walk out when a, a Mahler symphony was played. Today, this is lingua franca. Everybody knows uh, Mahler. One more thing about the book that's really wonderful is that it comes with two CDs in which you have really very interesting variety of both solo, with piano, with string quartet. I really appreciated getting that in the with the book. It was a nice surprise on the inside and back cover. For those of you listening, if you if you get this, don't listen on your iPod headphones. But <laughs> uh, but I actually wanted to come back, and I, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I wanted to ask you if you can reflect on your life in, in string quartets and as a viola player. And I think of a million things. The first thing I would say is, if you're going to be a quartet violist, this is the most unnatural kind of thing because the four of us are trying to see how many angels we can find on the head of a pin. We're constantly striving for the ultimate and so forth. And so it's a wonderful thing to be able to 
teach yourself some kind of psychology. If you're fortunate and you're with good people, you can learn from them. That was the case for me. But you could also learn, instead of talking, play. Show, show how the phrase could be, in your opinion, instead of chatting all the time. And learn to be respectful, and you will very shortly. So far as you're being a quartet violist, I say, bravo. <laughs> we have, I think we're so fortunate, we have the, the cream of the literature. Every great composer strove his mightiest to give us his innermost thoughts, and they're wonderful thoughts. We have things like uh, Mozart, when he got together with friends uh, to play viola with his friends in the string quartet, and he realized, why not liberate that and add another viola so that the viola can have conversations, so to speak, with the first violin. So we have his wonderful six-string quintets, quartet plus one extra viola. But beyond that, we have the most exciting repertory possible. It's hard to explain it, but when you get into it, don't you feel that's the case? Absolutely. That's why I'm in it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it may not bring you wealth. It may do, you may do well, but you will have had the most wide, happy time of a life. You will travel. You will play for different audiences, different cl clients. We'll will adore you <laughs> and give you the repeat call, perhaps. <laughs> and uh, you can say at the end of the day, I played the finest music, and I was so fortunate to have done that. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great to talk to you, and I enjoy your playing and personality. Wonderful guy. <laughs> <All right. Good. laughs> Thanks.